You know, I want to start sharing some things with you this week. What I'm going to be ministering on is talking about how to be happy even if you're a Christian. And you know, there's a lot of people that when you say something like that, they say, what are you saying? Christians ought to be the happiest people on the earth. Well, I agree. They should. But you know, the truth is they aren't. I meet some unhappy Christians. Matter of fact, actually, I probably, there are probably as many or more unhappy Christians as there are unhappy non-believers. You know, there's reasons for that. It's not automatic that when you get born again that you just automatically experience the joy of the Lord. That's why the Bible teaches us how to rejoice and gives us commands like Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He had to repeat it because he knew some people wouldn't believe this. Amen. Boy, some of the things that happen to us, they think, oh, no, you're supposed to be sorry and sad at times. But no, the Lord said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, just in case anybody missed this, I want you to know I didn't make a mistake. I'm repeating it. Rejoice. You know, Christians should be happy. But the sad fact is that that's not always true, and there are reasons for it. You know, last night when I ministered here, I gave a little introduction on this, and part of those reasons are because increased expectations can breed a lot of discontent. Turn over here to Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12. Let me share this passage with you as we get started. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12 says, Hope deferred, the word defer means put off or, you know, frustrate, not cause it to come to pass. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. It uses the term hope and desire interchangeably in this verse, so I think you could say that desire put off or not realized makes the heart sick. If you set your heart on something, and if you don't obtain that goal, you know, it has a tendency to make your heart sick. How many times have you anticipated a trip or have anticipated a raise or anticipated anything, and you don't get it, and all of a sudden your heart is made sick? Well, this is a scripture that's saying that. And you know, a Christian, if you aren't careful, when you become a Christian, you will put your goals, your hopes up here so high that many times you don't realize those goals and then you will be made sick. You'll begin to start experiencing discouragement and dissatisfaction. Actually, it's possible. See, for an unbeliever, an unbeliever doesn't expect much. They expect to get sick. They expect to catch the flu. There's some people that go around, if anything goes wrong, it's going to happen to me. And if that's what you expect, your heart will never be made sick because you've had your hope deferred. Amen. It might be made sick from other things, but you won't have the disappointment and the frustration of not having your goals met. But you know what? There are some Christians that, man, they are believing God for perfect health. They've got this goal set up there, and Satan will fight you with something. And there's, there's Christians that actually the flu can make you really depressed, not just because you're sick. An unbeliever could go take something for the flu and get over it and stuff, but the Christian's sitting here saying, but God, I believe it's your will to heal. How come this isn't happening? And there's some Christians... They get more bummed out over the flu than there are unbelievers. There are some Christians that are believing God for prosperity like we were teaching earlier and they aren't seeing prosperity come to pass and you can get discouraged over that. There are some Christians that are believing for people to be saved and lives to be changed and they expect more because they know that God is alive. And if you aren't careful, you can have your hope deferred and you can become sick over that. So what I'm saying here is that when I minister about how to be happy, even if you're a Christian, 
this is something that needs to be ministered on. There are keys to walking in the, in the joy and the peace of the Lord. And it is something that God desires for you to have. There's other segments in Christianity that really believe that to be a Christian you should be sad. There really are. I don't know if any of you have ever come out of that part of Egypt, but I did. <laughs> that the sadder you are, the holier you are. That, man, you ought to be serious. And, I mean, they'll put the weight of the world on you and tell you people are dying and going to hell. Shouldn't you be sad? Shouldn't you be upset over this? Man, if there's anybody in your family that's not walking with the Lord, you ought to be bearing a burden. And there are some people that get into intercession and into travail, which there's a truth about this, that there is a groaning in the Spirit. But the Scripture says, again, over in Philippians chapter 4, it says, in nothing... It says, uh, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. I do believe that there is a time to pray earnestly and to be grieved over something and travail, but the scripture says with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. I don't believe that there should ever be a period of time that you spend in prayer that you don't have rejoicing in it. I call it the sandwich technique. And this is what the Lord taught, too, in the, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. It starts off, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Praise to the Lord. Positive. Amen. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where you're praying for things and struggling against sin and struggling against inequities. Give us this day our daily bread, which is, again, talking about needs, but then it ends with, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It starts with praise, it ends with praise, and you sandwich in between it your request and any problems that you've got. There are times that you pray, and there are times that you may be grieved over something, and you may be grieved to see somebody headed to hell or something happening, but it is inappropriate, it is not wise, it is not what the Scriptures teach for you to bear burdens and go for days and weeks and months and years burdened down because you're just so upset over the way the world's going. And if you aren't careful, you can get to looking at the problems, praying and interceding for things to change, praying for people to change, praying for the nation to change, praying for politics to change, praying for these things. And if you aren't careful, you can become one of the most negative, upset, discouraging, dis-defeated people that ever was, and all in the name of the Lord. And God didn't intend you to be that way. Matter of fact, I tell a lot of people when they're interceding for someone else to be born again and they come to me and they're just brokenhearted and they're saying, I've been praying forever. Please help me pray for this person. Man, one of the first things I tell them is you need to quit praying for this person. I tell a lot of women that come praying for their husband and they're just brokenhearted. I tell them to quit praying for your husband. And they just are shocked like, what are you saying? Well, it's not that prayer's bad, but it's got to be the right kind of prayer. And a lot of what we're calling prayer isn't true prayer. It's griping and complaining. That's right. Amen. Well, Charles Capps, one time I heard him on the radio and he was praying and he, the Lord stopped him right in the middle of his prayer and said, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm praying. And he says, you aren't praying, you're complaining. There's a lot of us that what we're calling prayer is complaining. And there's a lot of people praying and saying, oh, God, my situation is such a mess. My husband's such a reprobate. Oh, God. And they're just griping is all they're doing and speaking negative things and making themselves depressed. And you know what? If the husband's unsaved, then that saved partner is the only link between that person and God. And if you get depressed and if you get defeated and if you get in unbelief, then you're in a big mess. And that unsaved person is in a real big mess because they just lost their intercessor. 
So, if your prayer is burdening you down and focusing on the negative, is getting you so defeated and so depressed that you don't have any joy, then you need to stop praying that way. So one of the first things I tell them to do is quit praying for them. Man, get back in the presence of the Lord and get happy. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you don't have any joy, then you don't have any strength behind your prayer. You know, it's like trying to lift a weight. You may have all of the arms and the muscles here, but if they don't have any strength in them, you're just useless. There's a lot of people that, yes, you know how to pray, and yes, you know the Lord, but you don't have any strength. You're spiritually weak because you're so depressed and you're so beat down and you're so discouraged. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You need to be strengthened. And so, yes, there's a time to pray and intercede for something, but never, ever, ever get so burdened down that you go through a day depressed in the name of the Lord. That's not God. Thank you for that thunderous silence. Some of you are thinking, Brother, I've lived this way. It's godly to go around bearing my burdens. That's not the way that Jesus was. Some people think, oh, now wait a minute. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Scripture does say that. But you know what? Again, it was sandwiched in between joy. Look at this passage of Scripture. This will blow some of you away over in Hebrews chapter 1. You need to read this out of your Bible. You wouldn't believe this is in the Bible if you don't read it out of your Bible. This is about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 is extolling Jesus and talking about that he's greater than the angels, greater than any way that God has ever spoken to us before. And in the process, it talks about Jesus. And in verse 6, it says, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten, this is Hebrews 1, 6, when he bringeth in the first begotten Jesus into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, talking about God the Father said, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Here's what God the Father said to the Son, Thy throne, O God. Here's God the Father talking to the Son, and God the Father calls Jesus God. That ought to answer some questions for anybody who doubts the deity of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God the Father called God the Son God. It says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness. Talking about the Son, Jesus. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This scripture says Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. You know, we've got this impression of Jesus being somebody who was just sad and morose and went around with his hands folded like this all of the time and never enjoyed anything. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures talk in Luke chapter 12 about Jesus rejoiced in spirit to see this and he rejoiced and he said, Thank you, Father, for revealing these things unto the babes and hiding them from the wise and the prudent. He rejoiced at things. Man, when Jesus healed people, do you think he cried? Seeing people raised from the dead, do you think it bothered him and that he was sad to see people shouting and praising God and throwing palm branches in the way and worshiping and saying, Hosanna to the Son of God? Man, Jesus was excited. He waited for that day for eons, amen. 
Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy above all of his fellows. You know, I actually saw this um, show by Johnny Cash. This was back in the 60s, I believe it was. It might have been the early 70s, but it was entitled The Gospel Road. Any of you ever see that? Anybody ever see that movie? A couple of people, just a few. Anyway, it was awesome. It was awesome. Man, I was at a Baptist church. And um, anyway, it's a long story, but I, some of the things that happened really bothered me because my religious mind. For one thing, they had a blonde-haired, blue-eyed hippie playing Jesus, which back in the 60s, you know, in the Baptist church, long-haired male guys were nothing but hippies and they weren't born again. If your hair touched your collar, you couldn't be saved. So it was offensive right off the bat. Plus, anybody knows that Jesus didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. But you know, as I saw this thing, what they did, they didn't try and characterize Jesus physically because nobody can agree on what he looked like. And so they didn't even try. They tried to catch his attitude, his spirit, and there were some things in there that they portrayed that really rocked my religious mind. I mean, one of the first things is when Jesus came down off the Mount of Temptation, and, you know, he was wearing a robe and sandals as they dressed back in those days, and he was coming down off the Mount of Temptation, and he was glad. He had beaten the devil. He was happy. And he came down off the mountain, and he was jumping from rock to rock, and then he got on a real steep place, and, I mean, he just sat on his rear and scooted down this mountain... His robe came way up, and he got up and dusted his rear off. And man, is like, I just was like this. Like, like, no, Lord, no. Jesus would have never done anything like that. Oh, I, could, I mean, it just turned me on the inside. And then as I was thinking about it, the Lord spoke to me, and he says, well, how do you think I got down off that And I'd never thought about it. I just thought that Jesus would have floated from rock to rock or... He wouldn't have scooted down the mountain and gotten dirty. You know what? It was good for me. It jolted me. And then after Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, man, he started praising God. And his disciples started praising God. And they took off walking down the road and Paul, I mean Peter... And John slapped each other on the back, and then Peter ran and jumped on Jesus' back, and he carried him piggyback down the road. They were running piggyback down the road. Man, that was another one of these type of deals. I was saying, couldn't be, couldn't be. But then the Lord reminded me of that scripture. It says, Jesus rejoiced to see these things and glorified God. How do you think he rejoiced? Man, David, when he rejoiced, he danced with all of his might. Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. You know what that means? That Jesus was happier than anybody else alive at that time. Now, he was also a man of sorrows. That's not a contradiction because I guarantee you, even when you're happy, when you see somebody else hurting, there can be sadness, there can be compassion, there can be grief for that person, but God doesn't want you living that way. Sometimes we present things and we actually make people think that it's holy to go around with a long face and looking like you've been eating persimmon. That's not godly. And then you go up and knock on the door and say, don't you want to be like me? <laughs> and we wonder why we aren't drawing more people to the Lord than what we are. I tell you what, it's fun to be a Christian. You can have fun being a Christian. I believe that God has a good time. 
I believe that in heaven we're going to have, you know, something similar to all of the funniest bloopers and videos and stuff like this. And, you know, when I get together with preachers, you know what we do afterwards? We go out and we talk about what God's doing. And we, we praise God for the service, but we sit around and tell stories about the fun, funny things that have happened. I tell you, preachers have funny things that happen. You deal with people, you're going to have some awesome stories. And man, we have had hilarious things. We sit around and laugh and laugh and laugh. It's fun to be a Christian. I'm enjoying this. I'm not here because I've got to be here. I'm here because I enjoy doing this. This is awesome. It's hard to believe God pays me for doing this. This is great. Just wonderful. I enjoy ministering the Word of God. I figured out today I've made over 5,000 radio programs. You know, that's fun. Man, that's awesome. That's, that's wonderful. I've enjoyed all of it. You know, it's fun to serve the Lord. Look over in the 21st chapter of um, Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. This is where Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. And the people were praising God. They were rejoicing. They were happy. And you know what the religious people did? In Matthew 21, 15, it says, When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, they weren't crying from sadness. This wasn't that type of cry. This was crying out loud. When they saw the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. Do you know the religious people still get displeased at people who have fun? They think it's sacrilegious, disrespectful to have fun in church. Again, I say, if Christians can't have fun, if Christians can't enjoy themselves, who in the world can have fun? Man, if people that have their sins forgiven and are going to heaven can't have a good time, how in the world can anybody have a good time? Man, we ought to be rejoicing. You know, the Scriptures called when the, when the early church came together, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it is, chapter 10 or 11, it talks about love feasts. Man, they had love feasts. They got together and they were so in love with the Lord and they were rejoicing and praising God. Scripture has a lot to say about praise. I tell you what, our, our services need to be much more joyful than what they are. I know the Calvary Cathedral here has been having a tremendous move of God and you know what? There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of rejoicing. That's the way that it's supposed to be. Christians, are, it is not godly to be sad. It is ungodly to be sad. Jesus isn't sad. God is not sad. God is not on the throne tonight wondering how he's going to pull this thing out. He's not worried. He's not wringing his hands, and he's not staying up at night. Well, let me re He does stay up at night. He doesn't ever sleep, what he says. But you know what? He's not staying up worrying, that's for sure. He's just keeping things going. God is not worried tonight. God's having a good time. Any of you ever see that uh, America's Funniest Home Videos a couple of weeks ago where Dave Duell was on there? Y'all see that? Good friend of mine, he was here. He was one of our speakers last year, and, and it showed a little clip on America's Funniest Home Videos of Dave Duell saying, and then I heard God laugh, and he goes, ha, 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 and then he hits the pulpit, and the pulpit just disintegrates. <laughs> And it was on America's Funniest Home Videos. You know what? I believe God laughed at that. I believe the Lord probably thought that was funny. 
it didn't break up his service. You know, it's amazing that ideas we get about the Holy Ghost. Don't anybody move. Don't anybody grieve the Holy Ghost. I don't know how Jesus ever made it. Man, Jesus didn't have all of the facilities that we've got and everything. You know, if any kid, I've actually heard sermons that if you chew chewing gum during a church service, you're liable to send somebody to hell because they will get to listening to you and watching you smack on that gum and it'll distract them from the service and you could send somebody to hell. You may think that's a joke, but I heard a sermon on that over here in Arlington, Texas when I was a kid. We're liable to grieve the Holy Ghost by chewing gum or by somebody moving or something. You know, in Jesus' services, man, he didn't have porta-potties out there for all of these people, and yet they stayed there for three days. You know, somebody's bound to have had to go to the bathroom, and there weren't facilities, and there were kids, and there were things going on. Man, his meetings were like a three-ring circus. And then he had a group of hecklers over here that were yelling at him. There was people over here yelling at him and saying, you know, you're a liar, you're a crook, and they were heckling him. And Man, it was wild. And yet Jesus seemed to minister all right. He did okay. It's amazing, the religious concepts that we get. Amen? I want you to know that God is not as picky as, as what people have presented him to be. It was the religious people that stood up and they got upset because the children were crying and praising. <laughs> Leave it up to a preacher on the front row. <laughs> now y'all straighten up and show respect down there. <laughs> oh man, I bet you some religious folks already hit the doors. There are some empty chairs back here. There's some people that have already left. But see, it was the religious people that stood up, and they were displeased because the children were crying and praising God. They wanted Jesus to get them in line. Do you see what they're doing? They're out of order. People say, well, man, I'm afraid this service is going to get out of order. I'm afraid it won't. Afraid it'll get, they're afraid it'll get out of hand. I'm afraid it won't get out of hand. It needs to get out of our hand. It needs to get to where God is in control. Amen. So here's what Jesus replied. They, the people said, Hearst thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? He was quoting Old Testament scripture, Psalms chapter 8, verse 2. If you want to turn over there and read it, Psalms chapter 8, verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. Jesus inserted two words, exchanged two words. He exchanged the word perfected for ordained, and he put in the word praise for strength. Now, the scripture doesn't contradict itself, so as you put these two passages together, what it says is that praise is strength. It's been ordained of God, and Psalms chapter 8, verse 2 goes on to say, because of thine enemies to still the mouth of the enemy and the avenger. Praise is ordained by God against the devil to stop the devil in his tracks. Praise stops Satan. And I tell you what, if you understand that, well then people, when they criticize you and think, but man, you can't be, you know, you can't go around just operating in happiness and joy and things like this. The devil will get you. Man, praise is a weapon against the devil. 
Praise is something that will keep the devil at bay. As a matter of fact, did you know that a lack of praise, a lack of joy is one of Satan's biggest tools? Yes. Satan has direct inroad into your life through sadness and through grief. The Scripture talks about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul talked about not having the grief of this world which works death. He says godly sorrow works repentance, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world produces death. The sorrow of this world, going around depressed, sad, and discouraged is a direct inroad of Satan into your life. You know, we have a Bible college, well, we had a Bible college student. They aren't back this year, but last year I was talking to one of my Bible college students, and there was a, a woman there that just has been depressed ever since she was a little kid. I mean, when she was a teenager, she entered into severe depression, and it's just a way of life. And anyway, she's, she's now married, and they've got a good marriage. Things are going good. Her husband loves God and loves her. He's patient with her. Everything's going good. But she's just depressed. She goes through fits of depression, and she accepts it as being normal. And I called her in, and we started talking to her, and I talked to her a couple of times, and it just like she wasn't really concerned about it. It was like, this is the way it goes. And, you know, I finally just sat her down, and I said, look, you aren't understanding the situation. The Scripture says over in he, uh, James chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, 14 and 15, it says that in your emotions or in your desires is where sin is conceived. If you can't control your emotions, if you're allowing negative emotions to flow through you unchecked because you think it's just normal, then you're allowing sin to be conceived. And you won't want the birth of it. See, Christians are trying to keep from acting in sin. We don't want to go out and commit adultery, and we don't want to reject the Lord, and we don't want to fall from our steadfastness, and we don't want to renounce faith and all these kind of things. We're wanting to do the right things, but most Christians don't recognize that your emotions are where sin is conceived. If you want to stop the birth of sin, stop the conception of sin. You know, Christians by and large don't believe in abortion, and when a woman comes up and says, but what about choice? I've got the right of choice. What about my free choice? Christians basically say that you should exercise your choice and not get pregnant. Amen. If you're going to use freedom of choice, I believe in freedom of choice, but don't wait until you conceive a life and then kill somebody to exercise your choice. Exercise your choice before you conceive. Once you have a life on the inside of you, you don't have the right to take their life. See, most Christians will agree with that and say, amen, brother, we need some responsibility. We don't need people going out and using abortion as birth control and terminating life. But you know what? Spiritually speaking, Christians live in spiritual abortion constantly. They allow sadness, defeat, discouragement, depression to flow through them unchecked, thinking it's normal, and then when it begins to produce rejection, anger, bitterness, sin, many people are led into sin because they've just been depressed and discouraged for so long. Christians fight with everything they can trying to have a spiritual abortion and keep the thing from acting out. And then they wonder why they're so tempted. Why is it they don't have any strength? Why are they having all of these problems? It's because you've allowed those, those feelings of depression, sorrow, and grief to flow through you. The scripture says they work death. You're conceiving sin in it. And most Christians don't feel any compulsion or responsibility over their emotions. Many people believe that emotions are a result, a response to circumstances. That is not true. Now, that is a bombshell. Most of you wouldn't agree with that. You might 
shake your head, but in actuality, most people feel that circumstances dictate responses on our part. Most people feel that if something terrible happens, you have to be oppressed, depressed, discouraged, or you wouldn't be normal. Well, it depends what, depends what you use as normal. Amen. What you're using is your reference point. If you're looking at the world and the way they operate, well, I guess that's normal. But if you look at what God expects, the Scripture tells us that we're supposed to rejoice. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord made it clear right there that in the midst of tribulation you should be of good cheer. The world says, no, in tribulation you've got to be depressed, you've got to be discouraged, you've got to be hurt or you're in denial. <laughs> you just aren't honest. You aren't facing the situation. You're suppressing it. They don't understand that, man, the Scripture teaches that you're supposed to rejoice in the midst of tribulation. You're supposed to be of good cheer. And if you took that Scripture in context, do you know what Jesus was talking about? That was the night before his crucifixion. He was preparing the disciples for the crucifixion and he started off in John 14, 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. He wasn't talking about just because, you know, your plane sat on the runway for three hours. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, that's an opportunity to exercise your faith, but like Charlie said, that's really not a major deal that's going to break or make you. He was talking about that they were going to see him crucified the next day, and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You know, most of us would say, but you should have been troubled. If you were there to see the crucifixion, it should have broken your heart, you should have been devastated, you should have been confused, you should have fallen apart like a $2 suitcase. That's normal. That's a healthy person supposed to be that way. Jesus was telling his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He told them again, he says, you are going to have peace. He says, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He repeated that in the 14th chapter. And then he ends it all by saying, in the world you're going to have tribulation, specifically like tomorrow about noon. <laughs> you are going to see me crucified. You are going to see problems, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He didn't say, I'm going to. It'll come back around. He said, I have. It's already done. He was speaking forth his faith and giving those disciples something that they could have stood on. And yet the disciples missed it. And most of us identify with the disciples and we say, well, that's the way I'd have been. Well, it's the way probably most of us would have been, but Jesus told us we didn't have to be that way. You know, if a person would have been standing in faith, Jesus had told his disciples 14 times about his resurrection, 14 times. And in the last six months, eight of them had come in the last six months. Jesus had prepared his disciples for what was happening, and yet, phew, right over their head, they missed it. If they'd have been walking in what God said, they could have had joy. Even seeing Jesus crucified, they would have known that man's Sunday's coming. They would have known that as bad as this looked, it was God's fulfillment of Scripture. It was God bringing the end to sin and Satan's reign, and they could have rejoiced by faith. The Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, talking about Jesus, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus had joy. 
Even on the cross, the Scripture tells us what he was thinking. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Again, most people see Jesus suffering on the cross, and he did suffer physically, emotionally, tremendously. But by faith, he rejoiced, is what the Scripture was saying. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus used joy as a motivation for him through hard times. And you know what? We're supposed to do the same thing. You're supposed to be rejoicing. If you're in a bad situation right now, you need to be rejoicing more than anybody else is rejoicing. Christians need to rejoice. Christians need to be happy. And even if you're burdened over something briefly, sandwich it in between praise, put your burden in there, and then praise God again by faith. It'll keep you in faith. Praise will make you take your attention off of the negative of what Satan is doing, and it will make you focus on the positive. Because, see, if you stay negative and look at your problems, you won't keep praising God. Praise, if you determine to do it, will force you, mechanically force you to get your mind off of the negative and onto the positive. Because, say, like the doctor tells you you're going to die, and if you start, you know, if you start trying to praise God... Thank you, Father. Praise you, Father. The doctor says I'm going to die. The doctor says I've only got six months to live. And then if your mind strays to dear old Saint so-and-so who died of the same thing and you saw them waste away and you were at their funeral and everybody was crying and, oh, Father, thank you, I'm going to be just like Aunt Susie. I'm going to waste away. I can see myself getting frail now, sick. And, uh, and if you're thinking like that, you will quit praising God. For you to praise, you have to put your mind on something positive. And the only thing positive, if everything in the natural looks bad, is you've got to put your mind on God. You've got to start looking at the promise instead of the problem. Right after Jesus told his disciples, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He immediately started talking about heaven right after he said, not be in trouble. What does that have to do with it? You know, the way I've interpreted that is to say that even if your situation is so bleak that you can't see anything good, which I don't believe is true, we become masters at gravitating towards the negative and seeing the negative side of everything. But even if, for some reason, there's somebody in here that you really are in a bad shape and you can't see anything good, if every time you see light at the end of the tunnel it turns out to be another train, amen? <laughs> I mean, if everything in your life is bad, well, then you can always close your eyes and think about heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. For a Christian, there is no reason not to praise God. Who cares if everything in your life is falling apart right now? It's just temporary. It's not going to last forever. If you begin to start putting things in the light of eternity, everybody in here has got a reason to praise God. Everybody in here should be shouting and praising God regardless of what's going on in your life. Every person in here has reason to praise God. If you can't see something in the physical that's positive, close your eyes and think about Jesus and heaven and all of those promises. 
You know, I had a woman in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've told this story a lot. I know some of you have heard it, but it's a classic example. I really enjoy telling this one. But there, I, I go to this place in Charlotte, North Carolina every year. I've gone there for 10 years, and a guy has me into his business. He has about 35 employees. He has them sit down, tells them, the clock is running, you're on my time, I'm paying you, and then he tells me to get up and just preach. And he tells his employees, you've got to listen to this guy preach as long as he wants to. So I get up and share with his employees. And about four years ago, man, we had a powerful, powerful move of God among those employees. I mean, God really touched them. So I went in this back room after I ministered and just had them come back, and I got to lead about 10 of them to the Lord out of these 35 employees. It was really awesome. Saw a lot of healings and good things happen. And one lady came back, and she had tried to commit suicide the day before, had slit her wrist, had gone to the hospital, and uh, they had already released her, but I mean, uh, she'd tried to kill herself. She was an alcoholic. Her husband was an alcoholic. They were both poor. I'm, I went over to their house, and I mean, it was a bad situation. Everything in their life was bad, and they were going through a divorce. And so this woman came to me, and when she walked in, she says, I'm not a Christian like you and the boss and these other people, but I know that prayer works, and I want you to pray for my marriage. Please pray. And she got to where she is crying. She says, please pray that we won't get this divorce. And anyway, I looked at this lady, and I said, now, wait a minute. Let me make sure I got this right. I said, you are not a Christian. She said, that's correct. I said, you know you aren't a Christian. If you were to die right now, you would go directly to hell. And she said, yes. And I said, and you want me to pray for your marriage and not, I mean, and not pray for your marriage and not pray for your salvation? And she said, yes. And I said, lady, a thousand years from now, after you've been in hell burning in fire for a thousand years, you aren't going to give a rip whether you were ever married or not. I said, who cares about your marriage? <laughs> Now, that is not to say that God doesn't care about your marriage, but I'm saying you've got to put things into perspective. I mean, marriage is just going to be like this. And here she was wanting prayer over something that was going to last like that and, and throw her eternity off and not be concerned about it. I said, you need to realize that, man, your marriage is not going to last very long compared to eternity. You need to be born again. And she says, you know, you're right. And she prayed and got born again. Amen. Now, see, the point I'm making is some of you think, well, brother, I believe we're supposed to rejoice, and I would, but... And then you tell me your sad story, and you believe that your situation justifies you not rejoicing. In other words, it's like we build a little fence here. And we say, well, anything within these confines, yes, I'm going to praise God. If I stub my toe, instead of cussing, I'm going to say, praise the Lord, amen. If I hit my finger with a hammer... Instead of cussing, I'm going to praise God. If something minor happens, I'm going to praise God. But if you're going through a divorce, you can't praise God. You're supposed to be depressed. No, you aren't. Again, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. He said do it always, always, always. And then he repeated it just in case somebody thought he really didn't mean what he said. You're supposed to rejoice in the Lord at all times. Psalms chapter 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's the way it's supposed to be. And see, there is no reason that you shouldn't be praising God. 
Charlie and Jill sang that song, Habakkuk. They, how'd you say it? Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3.17. I've always said Habakkuk. I don't know. Anyway, it's one of those minor prophets, 3.17. says, Though the fig tree shall not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet will I rejoice in, in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He just talked about judgment, and he said that the children of Israel were going to be dispersed because of their sin, and God was going to bring in armies that would literally take the pregnant women and rip them up with child and kill them and the child and rape them and plunder and destroy everything, and he ends up by saying, I don't care what happens. Even if there's no food, if there's no produce on the vine, if the cattle are gone, if we're judged, I'm still going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Even bearing judgment, he knew that God would, there was mercy in God's judgment. You know, over in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, this is a passage of Scripture that you hear quoted often. It says, I know the th thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. You know, that's a positive Scripture. But you know what, if you take it in context, you know what it's saying? It's judgment. He's talking about the destruction of the nation of Israel because of their transgressions, and he's prophesying judgment and doom. And in the midst of it, he says, but I know what my thoughts are towards you. In other words, he's saying, my heart towards you is mercy. There's peace. And he goes on in the next couple of verses, and he says, if you would seek me, you shall find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. He's telling them in the midst of judgment that I don't want to do this to you. It's because you've left me no choice. And even in, the, even in the midst of judgment, there's room for praising God because he's always more merciful than what we deserve. And today, through Jesus, we aren't even bearing the judgment and the punishment of God. We've got nothing but grace on us. But even under Old Testament judgment, Habakkuk was able to rejoice and praise God despite the terrible things because God is a merciful God. Brothers and sisters, we do not have a reason to complain. And again, I know many of you are saying, but my situation, I'm saying that you have put limits on God and said only certain things you'll praise God for. God says to bless him at all times, to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul and Silas, man, they were thrown in prison and they were put not only in prison, but in the lowest part of the prison, in the dungeon, their feet and their hands were in stocks and at midnight they were praising God. And I guarantee you they weren't praising God but through gritted teeth like, I will bless the Lord. They were praising God because they really knew God and they loved Him and it didn't matter. Lock them up. You couldn't keep them from praising God. You may stop them from preaching the gospel, threaten to kill them, but Paul said, I have the sentence of death in myself so that, man, what are you going to do with the guy that says he's already dead? And what are you going to do with the guy that said over in Philippians chapter 1 that I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better? He wanted to go to be with the Lord so badly that if somebody came up and threatened to kill him, man, he'd walk up and kiss him right on the forehead, amen? <laughs> Say, oh, thank you. This is going to end my quest. Man, how do you intimidate somebody like that? Most of us would be in the dungeon worrying about dying. Paul is already dead. Because of it, he wasn't afraid to die. He was looking forward to it, and he had his mind on the Lord, and he started singing praises to God even at midnight. Everybody in the jail heard it. God heard it. God loved it so much he got to tap in his foot, and an earthquake took place, and everybody was set free, praise God. 
Man, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people is what it says over in Psalms chapter 22. It's just a matter of perspective. Every one of us has something to praise God for. I'm challenging you tonight to change your thinking away from the world and quit blaming things and using excuses to be depressed and discouraged. Quit using religious excuses that you're supposed to be sad because Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. Quit using the world excuses where you just look at your circumstances and that justifies you being depressed because I promise you your reward in heaven is greater than any tragedy or any problem or tribulation that you've got here on the earth. What you need to do is just look at your blessings instead of look at all of your problems. You need to lift up your eyes and instead of being so focused on the negative right now, you need to look up and see the future. Your future is so bright you've got to squint to look at it. Amen. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the passage of Scripture. I hadn't even got to the first point I was trying to make tonight. If you can come back in the morning, man, we're going to get on this. We're going to share some good things. Where I was headed was really good. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul talking, and in verse 17, he says, For our light affliction... <laughs> Now, before we go any further, I'm going to share with you why he just had a light affliction. But I want to show you that when he said he had a light affliction, it wasn't because he didn't have any problems. Paul had plenty of problems. If you want to read about his problems, they're over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but Paul listed a few of his light afflictions, which is being stoned and left for dead, whipped and beaten with rods, shipwrecked, cast afloat in the deep, a night and a day, without food, without raiment, separated, despised of man, persecuted more than any other person. In the 12th chapter, he talks about a thorn in the flesh, which was not sickness, but a demonic messenger that stirred up persecution against him everywhere he went. Paul had more problems than anybody else. Paul even said that God has set forth us, the apostles, as it were, appointed unto death. He says, we are struggling and you're blessed. We're looked at and despised by the world, but you're blessed and honored and Man, he suffered more than any person in here. Anybody that thinks you got problems, Paul had bigger problems than you, and yet Paul just said it's a light affliction. So here's the point. If Paul had more problems than you've got and his affliction was only light, how can you get off calling all of your light afflictions big? The truth is your impression, your perspective is wrong. Here's Paul with bigger problems saying it's a light affliction. Here's you with smaller problems saying it's a big affliction. It's so heavy I can hardly bear it. Who's right? Somebody's got to be wrong. You're saying opposite things. I just choose to believe the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. The truth is, brothers and sisters, our afflictions are light. They aren't a big deal. Clifton Coulter right here uses an expression that, man, really ministered to me. I've pinched this from you, brother. I use it all the time. But the devil will put a little toothpick in your way and by the time you get through meditating on it, it grows and multiplies until it becomes a ball bat and he beats your brains out with it. <laughs> there are some of you that just have little tiny things that you focused on and meditated on that you, it becomes so big that all of a sudden it's just about to destroy you. We had a guy come to our minister's conference and Bob was talking about some of the problems he went through with this church and how he stood and how God brought him through. It wasn't a negative. He was talking positively about don't quit. We had Greg Moore from Decatur, Texas talk about a $9 million lawsuit that was canceled against him. 
and how that he just came through it and God blessed him. And you know what? There was a man that came to that minister's conference that had problems. And he thought everybody should know how bad his problems were. He wanted people to pity him. And he got up and testified. He says, man, after hearing what you guys have been through, talking about the things that you've been through, he says, I don't have any problems compared to you guys. He says, you guys have my problems for breakfast. And he says, I've been set free. I don't have any problems. You know, just he changed his perspective. Nothing changed in his circumstances except his perspective. The truth is, those of you that think your problems are so big, they aren't all that big. Some of you are saying, but man, I got a terrible marriage. I've been standing for five years. It's terrible. It's terrible. What should I do? You ought to praise God. You got a lot to praise God for. If nothing else, praise God that in heaven they don't marry or are given in marriage. Amen. That's what Jesus said. You ought to praise God. It's just temporary. Amen. Man, what a deal. You ought to be praising God. Hallelujah. You got a lot to praise God for. So Paul said, our light affliction, and he gives you a reason right here. He says, which is but for a moment. Did you know your light affliction is just for a moment? That's what I was talking about, that woman who was praying over her divorce. And I said, lady, your marriage is just like that compared to eternity. If you shrink, if you put everything into perspective of eternity, it just shrinks your problem down to it's nothing. It's like taking binoculars and instead of looking through the little end and out the big end, look through the big end and out the little end. Look at this big mountain that's following you and just turn the binoculars around and it just becomes a little tiny. You can just reach out there and grab that thing and it's no problem, amen. Throw it in the sea. You know, you can change your perspective. So what? The doctor says I'm going to die? Wonderful. I've been wanting to go to see Jesus. You know what? If I get healed, it's going to be an awesome testimony. And if I don't get healed, I'm going to be with Jesus. I can't lose for winning. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't get healed? No, I believe it's God's will to heal every time. But, you know, so what if you didn't get healed? You die on the front lines, believe in God. That's no disgrace. There's no dishonor. Some people are so afraid that, oh, I'm going to fail. Man, the only people that don't ever fail are people that fail to do anything. If you're doing something, you'll probably fail. You'll probably make some mistakes. No problem. No problem. It's no big deal. Amen? See, put things into a perspective of eternity. It's just for a moment. You know that scripture, it came to pass? That's why it came, so that it could pass. It came to pass. It's going to pass. It'll be over with. You don't have to live with it forever. Man, you begin to look at things this way and you know what? You can rejoice. You can rejoice because we're just passing through. Temporary. So it's just for a moment. And then in verse 18 it says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's another reason that Paul could say he had a light affliction was because he wasn't looking. He wasn't focused on the physical realm. He was focused on the unseen realm, the spiritual truths. He was looking at what God had done instead of what the devil has done. Satan operates in the physical. 
If you're going to be operating and focused on the physical, you are going to be zeroed in on the devil. If you want to be zeroed in on what God is doing, you've got to look in the Word of God. You've got to, by faith, perceive things. You've got to be able to look beyond the physical and into the spiritual. You've got to see things that can't be seen. You know what we call seeing something that you can't see with your physical eyes? It's faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith enables you to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Do you know what we call faith? Most people don't like it. But the truth is, faith is seeing the invisible instead of seeing the visible. Faith is being able to see what God is doing instead of what the devil is doing. Most people are zeroed on what the devil is doing. They're so focused on it. And whatever you focus your attention on is going to dominate you. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you're looking at negative things, you're going to be negative. If you're looking at depressing things, you're going to be depressed. You look at sad things, you're going to be sad. You look at the promises of God and the, and the victory and all of these things, and you're going to be rejoicing and praising God. It just works that way. Philippians chapter 4 says, Think on things that are honest, pure, lovely, just, and of good report, etc. Think on these things. If you think on those things, you will have life and peace. Romans 8, 6, To be carnally minded is death. Carnally minded means natural minded. Think on the natural realm, and you're going to have death. But spiritually minded is life and peace. Think on think spiritually minded. The Word of God is spiritually minded. It's spirit and it's life. You think on that, you will have life and peace. You can turn that verse around backwards and tell what you have sown in your life by looking at the results at the harvest. Are you having life and peace? If you are, then you're spiritually minded. Are you having death? If you are, you're carnally minded. Carnal mindedness is what produces death. It's not your genes. It's not your circumstances. It's not that mate that God gave you. It's not the afflictions and the problems in your life that produce it. It's carnal mindedness. It's the way you look at it that produces death. Do you know John Wesley was a man that turned the world right side up for God? Mightily used of God, and I read his biography not long ago, and his wife was a witch. She was vicious. He would be praying and she'd come in and slap him and kick him and sometimes knock his feet out from under him and mock him. She hated God. She hated John Wesley and he lived with her for 40 years, loved that woman, prayed for her, never did anything wrong, just stuck with her. He had a bad marriage and John Wesley turned the world right side up for God. And some of you can't even go to work because your husband or your wife is doing something. I tell you what, it's not your problem that's the problem. It's the way you view your problem that's the problem. You shouldn't be looking at the physical realm. You ought to be looking at the spiritual realm. You should put it into perspective and you should begin to recognize that it's God's will for you to be happy. It's not wrong to be happy. It's wrong to be sad. Again, you can be sad or really sad is an improper terminology. You can be grieved for a brief period of time and operate in compassion and intercession but it ought to be sandwiched in between praise. Start with our Father which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Stick in your request and end with thine is the glory, the power, the honor forever and ever. Man, sandwich it in. Start with praise. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Psalms 100 says, Be thankful unto him 
and bless his name. For the Lord is good, and his mercy endureth forever. Psalms 103, verse 3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. You know why he commanded you not to forget his benefits? Because you will forget his benefits if you don't make an effort to do it. You'll gravitate towards the negative, and you'll focus on the negative. You need to make an effort to praise God. That's the reason I'm teaching on this. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. The Word teaches us some things about joy, contentment, happiness that you aren't going to get naturally. You do not naturally operate in joy. 